If you have an analysis, as I do, in which this enormous amount of social ills is a result of this system that explicitly says human need is subordinate to profit. And if you have an ethics by which human life, um, human liberation, human fulfillment, human flowering is a good, and if you have, therefore, an analysis in which all of those things are crushed under an accumulative right. dynamic, who would you be not to hate? Right. Who would you be not to say, yeah. this is a hateful system and I hate it? This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hello, my name is Tammy Kim, and I'm a writer at The New Yorker and the co-host of the podcast Time to Say Goodbye. Today, I have the great luck of talking to China Mievo, a writer of uncommon breadth, integrity, and precision, whose work I've admired for a long time. Many of you know China as the author of speculative fiction, with beautiful novels such as Perdido Street Station, The City and the City, and Rail Sea. You may also know his nonfiction, which ranges from scholarly work on international law and stylish aesthetics essays in the quarterly journal Salvage to the book October from 2017, which tells the story of the Russian Revolution. We're here today to celebrate his latest nonfiction book, A Spectre Haunting on the Communist Manifesto, published by Haymarket. A Spectre Haunting is part critical companion, part literary exegesis. The book proceeds in six chapters, elegant, economical, then reproduces the manifesto itself and its many prefaces over time and space. I confess that until reading this book, I had not looked at the Communist Manifesto in many years. It inspired me to recover my first encounter with this text in, in, this, in this very slim book I bought at a Borders chain bookstore in Tacoma, Washington in 1996 the receipt still tucked inside. A Spectre Haunting invites us to revisit that first encounter with the manifesto, to examine it as literature, to place ourselves in the time that it was written, February of 1848, and personalize its words to our lives and situations today. China considers the manifesto's flaws and helps us appreciate all that it got right. In doing so, he offers what I see as a very loving and lovingly assembled manual for all of us who look around at the world we have and imagine, desire, and wish to fight for something infinitely more habitable and humane. The agenda for today is I'll, I'll be asking China some questions that I've prepared, and then China will answer questions from the audience, which we'll be collecting throughout um, our conversation and you can submit through the chat function. 
Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you to the Haymarket team for putting this together. And China, welcome. Thank you for this wonderful book. Oh, thank you. And thank you for such a lovely introduction. Um, I thought we would just start with the very basics. Can you say a little bit about what compelled you to write this book, to revisit the manifesto in this way right now? I think sometimes it feels as if anyone who encounters uh, any of Marx's um, classics, particularly Capital and the Communist Manifesto, feels driven to write about it um, because they have this enormous impact mm. on on readers. Um, but the specifics, I suppose there were a couple of reasons. One is um, uh, the, the Every every generation encountering the um, the manifesto anew uh, necessarily, and there's something so particular to me, having been political and politically active for many decades, about this bizarre febrile moment we're in right now, where like it, you know, it it, it there's so many absolute toxicities going on, and 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 this complete global catastrophe in terms of ecological crisis and mass extinction and so on, and at the same time the kind of the, the sort of heartbreak and hope of of Corbyn and Sanders and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the, the, it felt like it felt like a, a very sort of, um, as I say, febrile moment in which to say, you know, how do we now experience this um, in ways that are inevitably different from how uh, the great kind of anti-colonial activists experienced it, or the uh, you know the in the eighteen seventies or whatever. It, there's a, there's something very specific about this moment, um, and finally. Honestly, I just there's a sense in which I I I feel like I've reached um, saturation point with irritation about the um, the sheer pitiful bad faith and ignorance of the critiques in the manifesto. Mm. Most of them. and the thing about that is like I really I mean I was very glad that you said in your introduction you know he mentions the flaws because yeah I don't want. I mean, this book, like, there's there's no question that I wanted to be very sort of rigorous and serious about saying, like, here's, it's inadequate on this, There's a, this is clearly not true, this doesn't work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what's really remarkable is just the kind of, um, the profound lack of curiosity, as, as well as the ignorance of most of the kind of liberal and conservative critiques. Um, and, and in a way, I kind of... Like the book is clear. No one is going to be surprised by my politics and reading the book. It's going to be clear where I stand. But I did also try to write it so that someone who completely disagrees with me politically can read it and can learn about the manifesto. Because if you're going to criticize it, you might as well criticize it like at its strongest. You might, you know, Mm -hmm. like you might as well like not embarrass yourself with the scale of the attacks that have historically been leveled against it, which are just pitifully intellectually uninteresting. So (laughs) apart from anything else, just as a matter of intellectual good faith, I wanted to sort of say, you know, let's talk about this specifically, this document in its time, in our time, and as a document, you know? Mm. Maybe we could start there with with those criticisms or even those bad faith criticisms. Um, in some ways, it seems like, and you you proceed this way in the text, um, talking about liberals and and conservatives' critiques of the Communist Manifesto as a way of critiquing what they perceive to be communism itself, as an ideology, as a system of thinking, as a political system that's deployed in the world. So what are they arguing that you consider bad faith? And that is actually quite weak and that we can demolish and kind of do away with quickly. I suppose, I mean, I I would say, um, you know, there's bad faith and then there's just 
piss poor because there are some people who are, who are offering you know good faith piss poor arguments um, okay. but I think um, so you know so I tried to go into this in some detail in the book but uh, in you know some of the most the probably the most common attacks are uh, and, and very powerful ideologically, but they're also intellectually completely vacuous and, and uninteresting. So you can't really engage with them very much other than saying, well, this is obviously absurd. So the classic one, which is like, don't be ridiculous. That is basically the sum total <laughs> of the most common attack on, communi- on, on the Communist Manifesto is don't be ridiculous. And then if, if pushed, it becomes, well, you know, it's common sense that this is that this is absurd. And common sense is always an enemy to thought. That doesn't mean that everything that people think as common sense is wrong, but if you think it just because it's common sense, you're not thinking (laughs) about it at all. And throughout history, so much common sense has been overturned. It's common sense that slavery is the best way to run society. It's common sense that women shouldn't have the vote. So this is is just such self-evident bullshit. And what it basically says is, I don't want to think about this. And Mm. so if you then actually make people think about it and you say, what do you mean? Then it becomes, well, you know, humans are just always going to be selfish and, you know, that's a lovely idea, but you're just utopian. Yeah. And and then and then it's like, well, you know, what about the 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 mass uh, behavior around the world of people supporting each other and being self-sacrificing and so on? And I think a lot of conservatives think, again, good faith or bad faith, that on the left, we think everyone is lovely. Sadly, I'm well aware that not everyone is lovely. All you have to think is that human behavior is plastic. It it, it changes. It's historically specific. And that is it any surprise that people very often, you know, with wonderful exceptions, behave in sort of selfish and and selfish ways in the midst of a system that glories in selfishness and rewards it and validates it and so on. So, So this is another just ahistorical, uninteresting question. The thing that I think you're adverting to is this the fact of the stalinist regimes like right. put broadly uh, you know you know ranging from north korea to cuba to um the soviet union as was and this is an interesting one because critics can basically attack the manifesto and communism both on the grounds that they existed and they were basically pretty awful yeah. and that they collapsed and so they no longer existed mm-hmm. so it couldn't work uh, so it's like you know they 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 were terrible and they failed, and again now this this is where it this is where there is either bad faith or or just sheer ignorance because the fact is you know and I know and anyone who's done the research knows that there have for over a hundred years been serious rigorous fascinating arguments on the left including the Marxist left including the communist left on the nature of these regimes there have always been activists and whole currents uh, and scholars saying this is not the right way to be organizing things and this is not the model as proposed under the classic texts of communism for the following reasons and so on and what I want to say is you if you're a critic you may disagree with that but to simply act as if, you know, as if communism is is what these regimes say it is, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and have no curiosity about the critical mass of debate on that is just so intellectually embarrassing, you know. Um, <laughs> and, and it's like it's like it's the equivalent of me saying, well, you know, didn't Reagan say that the U.S. was a, you know, a shining city on a hill? So clearly the U.S. is a shining city on a hill. Right. Uh, what else is there to say about it? You know, it's just absurd. <laughs> so, 
so again it, as much as anything it's a plea to just have a serious discussion about it you know what even if you end up disagreeing let's let's talk like grown-ups <laughs> well yeah and, then, I really and there are some other criticisms as well that i go into that i think are a little bit more serious and more interesting and so on but but those are the ones that just make one roll one's eyes yeah and i think that the historical one comes up all the time because people will say well it seems good in theory but you can't ever practice it right and every experiment has failed so i think that's that's quite helpful yeah and there are there are ways that that can be put in a more serious way. Like there is a there is a position that will say, you know, whatever the people on the ground think, this is the inevitable tendency of that political right. tradition for the following reasons. Now, okay, now now we can have a serious discussion mm -hmm. about that. But mostly when people put it that way, they they they, they don't go into that, whether through mm -hmm. ignorance or lack of interest or whatever. It's just, well, you know, look at North Korea case closed right um, yeah and and again as well as well as as well as just being intellectually uninteresting and and so on it's also personally <laughs> insulting because these yeah. things are often presented as a kind of gotcha and it's like oh yeah i never thought of that right. you know like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly um i'm curious if you could say a little bit about what the manifesto was written for so it you know is a manifesto that existed in a time and place and was produced for a purpose. Um, you write about, this was fun for me as a journalist, how you know terribly behind on his deadline Marx was in getting the manifesto together and sort of rushed to the ending because he was behind. Yeah. Um, so what were Marx and Engels trying to do and why were they making this? They were commissioned to write this document um, by the, the Communist League, which was this tiny little organization that they had uh, become very prominent in and won over to their um, sort of uh, their their way of approaching things. An organisation of a lot of um, German uh, radical uh, expatriate workers, among others, um, at one small current within the kind of small split current of the left in in the 1840s, and and it was um, it was an attempt to kind of lay out the sort of historic position but what happened during the writing of it was that revolution literally started to break out in europe and beyond <laughs> yeah. um and this is where you get these amazing um these 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 uh these missives you're talking about where uh people are writing to marx and saying you know where's that document you promised <laughs> yeah. us um, and uh, and 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 it's amazing because like it literally had an had a chance to sort of actually have a kind of a material impact to some degree within these amazing events that he'd been he'd been you know desperate for um but because of what one writer rather beautifully calls his, his abiding brinkmanship with deadlines um <laughs> he uh, even that could not get him to get it in on time and in the end his comrades were basically sort of shouting at him and as you say um the last chapter is incredibly truncated because he's clearly just like throwing it in the post to get it there done in time and so on um so it so it's a document that has that that, that sort of slides across registers because it you know in some ways it's very it, it's sort of trying to do a job of history it's trying to do a job of recruitment it's trying to do a job of um explanation um and then all of a sudden it starts to become more and more politically urgent through it through the course of its own writing mm. and 
you, you talk about sort of what communism meant at that time versus a term like socialism, which I think in our contemporary political parlance is much more common, but sometimes they are overlapping and kind of just start describing the same things. Um, but it sounds mm. like at the time socialism um, meant something very specific that was distinct from communism and belonged to a certain class of people. Could you could you talk about that, that distinction? Yeah. That's something Engels wrote later when he was discussing the manifesto. He said, you know, at the time we couldn't have called it the Socialist Manifesto because basically his point was that socialism at the time of writing was a, was an essentially kind of middle class position of that broadly encompassed any kind of social concern about the lot of the poor and, and could range you know, could be extremely patrician, could be extremely, was in no way necessarily radical and so on, but that to to call yourself a communist put you in this kind of position of um, fidelity to traditions of, you know, the extreme left of the um, of the of the French Revolution, for example, mm -hmm. and this kind of, you know, a much more radical and ruptural politics. What's interesting for me is that relatively quickly afterwards they became much more relaxed about calling themselves socialists or communists sort of um without you know and people can still debate the specific meanings but they they mm -hmm. they, they lost a lot of that concern which is partly why Engels was explaining the context later um so it must have that 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 sharp distinction i think must have begun to erode relatively fast after the after the publication of the um of the manifesto because mm -hmm. they themselves became less concerned about it. It was something you said in one of your articles was, was that the, the, the young um, uh, activists of today are, are, are quite unconcerned about labels like communism, yes, um, yeah. which I, I was, I was really happy to read that because I hope it's true. Um, and I, I was kind of, I suppose to us to an extent almost kind of pleasantly surprised because <laughs> I do wonder whether there is still, perhaps even more now than before, something of a distinction between the two terms and that, you know, people don't necessarily bat an eyelid if you call yourself a socialist, but I think to call yourself a communist, and I get this, is still, my, my sense was something of a surprise. But is this an experience that you've actually had with like young <laughs> activists being totally unconcerned about it? I think it, that is still a small sliver of the activists left, but I think it's a it's a prominent and important sliver. And um, mm. I, I was noting that, for instance, in um, the organizing of the first labor union at an Amazon warehouse in the United States in Staten Island, New York, the gr core group included a member of the Young Communist League who talked mm -hmm. about how they were passing around 1930s literature um, on the organizing of the steel industry, famously by William Z. Foster, who was a, as a communist. And so there certainly is a, a sort of, um, I would say, the kind of avant-garde of some of our organizing movements in the United States where yeah. communism is being kind of repurposed and re-understood. But I think in the main, it, it's what you say, that there's still a stigma attached and um, you know, thanks to Sanders, Corbyn, some of these other leaders, it's much easier to identify as a socialist or democratic socialist without stigma these days. Communism still, I yeah. think, you know, and, and, um, and, you know, even in the United States laws, like when an immigrant is trying to yeah. put in applications, right, you have to say that you have no membership in the Communist Party or other totalitarian parties, like this is still the, the language of, of, the law. Um, I'm curious in in Britain, how is communism understood versus socialism? Say on the left. 
I mean, it's extre- extremely rare for someone to mm. openly identify as, as as a communist, and um, and again, I don't. I don't, much like the later Engels, for the most part, I don't <laughs> tend to get my knick my knickers in a twist about, right, about this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, like I. Um, I think there's this odd there's this odd phenomenon at the moment, which is the kind of um, which I would never have predicted in a million years, which is the kind of uh, uh, the the small but voluble kind of online meme culture of communism mm. which um i think you know so so if you had told me a few years ago that like um the phrase fully automated luxury communism would be like <laughs> a phrase that resonated online among like young people <laughs> i would have thought this was completely insane and yet there was recently a ted talk about it which is probably if anything evidence that it's wow. completely past its sell by date yeah, maybe. But, um, um <laughs> So I do think, and, and, and like a lot of that meme culture, there's this kind of oscillation between playfulness and provocation and teasing and trolling and maybe some serious stuff and so on. And I, again, I don't have a problem with that at all. I think that I think that, that that sort of unstable register is not in and of itself a problem. It can be quite fun and quite provocative and so on. But the problem is that there is also a point when if you're going to talk more seriously or deeply about these things it's worth trying to unpick what these meanings might be and hence you know coming back to this seminal source text and this is partly why the um uh the epic the epigram for the book comes from asata shakur and and ends up my book i mean and 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 said and she ends up saying like essentially that she used to when she was asked what communism was initially she she was sort of denouncing it but then she realized she had no idea what it was and Mm. she ends up saying only a fool let somebody else tell him who his enemy is which again is partly this this plea of saying let's actually talk seriously about what is said here rather than using it as a, a word like the boogeyman or something right the one of the um the things that will stick out in people's memories for those who have read the manifesto is the question around the abolition of property. Um, Mm. And you spend some time talking about what exactly that means and what exactly Marx and Engels intended by that, because I think a lot of people, you know, it, it, it seems so shocking. It's so difficult to imagine. It's also sort of unclear what that means. Like, would I have to go and eliminate, you know, my attachment to all my books or my, sell my furniture, right? So it's um, down to these sorts of absurdities. Um, So what does that mean and why is that a fundamental part of what is laid out in the manifesto? Well, again, I mean, the manifesto itself, and I think this is something that can't be stressed enough, the manifesto form is mm-hmm. crucial to this and this is as you know one of the things i try and talk about yeah. quite a lot in the book right. and i think a lot of the a lot of the a lot of the criticism and and indeed in some cases the, the praise for the book is um is misplaced because it doesn't really engage specifically with the way manifestos work and what they do and the way they use language and the, re- the reason i say this is because there's no question that there are points in which like marx and engels in the most you know splendid way sometimes are they can be real trolls and um, <laughs> and they can and they have a and, and they have a really kind of winning swagger and certainly when it comes to property um you know probably my favorite line from the manifesto is there's this fantastic bit where they suddenly 
they suddenly change the person mm-hmm. and instead of talking in a kind of general historical sense they suddenly start using the second person right. and they're not yeah. talking to workers they're talking to the bourgeoisie it's amazing yeah and they start saying you do this you do this and they say at one point this wonderful thing they say you reproach us with intending to do away with your property precisely so that is just what we intend and i love that line that refusal <laughs> yeah. to apologize mm-hmm. but as you say when you get into it one of the things that's interesting about the manifesto is that it pretty explicitly says we're not talking about individual property here we're not right. saying you don't get to keep your favorite pen you, as yeah. you say your book <laughs> you can have that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about essentially you know the um the, the essentially the kind, kind of the means of production the you know the the property of like uh, the, the 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 kind of generative uh, engine of society uh, you know is held in common mm-hmm. rather than held individually uh, for profit and so this becomes so the question of property here becomes about um like not the stuff that you have in your pocket but the stuff that makes the stuff that keeps the world going mm-hmm. and is that and should it be owned by and controlled by a small group of individuals for profit at their behest using the, the labor of everyone else or com- communally decided and this mm-hmm. this notion of like communal so, so hence communism you know this, this is this is about like holding that kind of property in common um so that's essential and, and 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 as a corollary of that another thing that they um they're, they're very clear about is this is this is not an ascetic communism this is not a communism yeah. because there there were traditions of communism that were sort of like you know we don't need all the stuff we have as long as everyone's got a bowl of rice and you know a, a, and a roof <laughs> that's it and, and and marx and engels have nothing they don't want that they don't want asceticism they want the productive powers of 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 like um well of capitalism but sort of put to the to the to the common wheel um mm-hmm. they so so it's not just a question of saying we're not trying to take your you know as i say your favorite books it's also about saying and and you are allowed and 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 you're gonna you we're gonna we're gonna increase the productive power we're gonna increase you know like that this is a this is mm-hmm. if you like a kind of prototypical fully automated luxury yeah. communism <laughs> rather than a austere communism right yeah they, they don't envisage a world full of monks and nuns. Mm-hmm. If you guys listen to China on Chris Hayes' podcast, he makes a very funny um, joke about how Marx would have been horrible and amazing on Twitter. Because he, <laughs> there is this kind of trollishness built into this manifesto and the, the sort of general arguments style. Um, also, yeah, and he was also, he was he was not someone who, who, who ever particularly had much of a good sense of scale about the nature of 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 arguments he was having so he will you know he will fully drop everything and write a 300 page book denouncing someone who it doesn't really matter that much about but he's just really annoyed him in that moment you know yeah i think reading today that section of the communist manifesto where they go in and try to destroy all of these sort of sectarian arguments and groups that we don't really have any knowledge of today. <laughs> it feels very funny and sort of disproportionate yeah. in times. Um, 
I, I loved the, you, you were talking about the manifesto as a form and, and trying to understand it that mm-hmm. way. And you start by by really reading it as literature, which was very new for me, honestly, because, uh, you know, I think we all kind of encounter it through activism or political science mm-hmm. class or something. Generally, it's for the arguments made within rather than looking at its lines and it's, you know, the way that it's constructed. Um And I'll just say, you know, in the first uh, section of the book, you say the text is prophetic, poetic, melodramatic, and tragic. The proletariat, quote, has nothing to lose but their chains. In the rush of capitalism, all that is solid melts into air, that famous line. I think you're you're really um, engaging with the poetry of the text. Why did you want to do that? Why is that important to understanding the Communist Manifesto? For me, there's basically there's two important reasons. One is, again, simply if you like, in terms of the history of ideas um, of kind of intellectual uh, good faith and curiosity, it's worth mentioning that this document is stunningly beautiful, um, and that you know some of the passages are just extraordinary, and that the 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 kind of the rhythms and the vatic register is just it's it, it it's an important part of it. Um, you know, there was just a very important book by Ludovico Silva published um, about mm. Marx's literary style and his metaphors and so on. And these are constitutive and, and become very important in this text. But it's not just for me, it's not just to say, um, hey, this is a really prettily written book. Now let's get into the argument. It's also an attempt to, as as I say, as you say, to sort of look quite seriously about manifestos in general Mm -hmm. and the the way a manifesto works because it seems to me that um an enormous amount of the the confusion um about the manifesto both from its enemies and from some of its friends comes from a sort of weird lack of curiosity about (laughs) the way manifestos work and the thing about uh and I, i would say incidentally that you know all texts i think to some degree are unstable and are doing more than one thing mm-hmm. but some more than others and a manifesto much more than like for example a, a textbook of logic a manifesto is an extremely polyphonous kind of hmm. form it has many voices and it's doing many things so in the manifesto in, in, in manifestos in general and, and in this as almost like the Ur manifesto of the modern yeah, period, right. it is at one and the same time, sometimes in the same line, it is laying out a historical theory, laying out a sociological analysis, making political suggestions, desperately pleading with people to join <laughs> them, trying to recruit people, showing off, arguing, pouring <laughs> yeah. scorn, etc., etc. And I do think this is important as more than just a literary thing, because, I mean, to give you one example, um, when you look at the, um, when you look at the, uh, the, 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 the section on nationalism, mm-hmm. there's this very notorious line where they say um, the workers have no country. Right. And this yeah. is often being used as a, as a, as a way of um, saying, you know, they dramatically underestimate the power of nationalism. And I think there's an element of truth to that. I think they were too sanguine. Marx and Engels were too sanguine about the hold of nationalism. But the interesting thing about that line is that on the one hand, like, I think that that line is not merely a statement of truth. If you if you, if you, if you offer it as yeah. just a statement of truth, um, then it's clearly wrong, uh, inadequate. But what it's also doing, it's, it's a demand. It's a right. plea and it's a yeah. warning 
part of what it's doing in the context of this document, which is designed to recruit radical workers, is saying to those workers, you should have no country. If yeah. you are identifying with your country, you are making a mistake. And if you understand the way a manifesto form works, then you can say, not mm -hmm. there's no flaws in this, but mm -hmm. you can say, okay, this yeah. is a point in which to have a serious reading of this, we have to understand the nature of this line and that maybe the accusation that it just thinks nations have no hold is not just not fully true, but is exactly wrong to some extent. It's exactly the anxiety about the hold of the nation that leads to that line. Mm. And that's where this question of poetry and the manifesto form comes in and I think is behind a lot of the uh, the wrong-headed readings of, of what it says. Mm. I love that idea of looking at each line and trying to, you know, see its many intentions, not just meanings. Yeah, and it's it's a question of like like I think a lot of the time the arguments both again both for and anti are saying well are Marx and Engels saying this or are they saying this and right exactly the problem is and again I think like any text kind of both and <laughs> and sometimes they're contradictory and that doesn't mean that the text is valueless and it doesn't mean it's wrong and it doesn't mean or like wholly wrong and it doesn't you know what it means is like a lot of texts this is doing more than one thing so to analyze it seriously you have to sort of say what are the um what are the centers of gravity what are the kind of tidal movements in the text rather than you know what is the arithmetic argument in the text because it doesn't work mm -hmm. that way mm -hmm. if you're enjoying the haymarket live series you'll also be interested in a new book from haymarket a specter haunting on the communist manifesto by china mieville Few written works can so confidently claim to have shaped the course of history as Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels' Manifesto of the Communist Party. Since first rattling the gates of the ruling order in 1848, this incendiary pamphlet has never ceased providing fuel for the fire in the hearts of those who dream of a better world. Nor has it stopped haunting the nightmares of those who sit atop the vastly unequal social system it condemns. In this strikingly imaginative introduction, Acclaimed writer China Mieville provides readers with a guide to understanding the manifesto and the many specters it has conjured. Through his unique and unorthodox reading, Mieville offers a spirited defense of the enduring relevance of Marx and Engels' ideas. As Mike Davis puts it, the manifesto is one of history's most profound prophecies. In Mieville's brilliant interpretation, it is like a great comet whose periodic return blinds the sky with its light and urgency. Read this and be dazzled. Find a specter haunting at haymarketbooks.org. I, I was thinking as I was reading that section on the manifesto form about how poisoned that word has become in the United States in particular, I think because it's so often attached to acts of violence. And we have so many sort of mass shootings and awful things here where we say, oh, and there was this, you know, racist screed, this manifesto that was found in the man's locker, this sort of thing. That's kind of how, honestly, that, that, the term is sort of most commonly used or heard in the news in the United States because of our culture of mass shootings, et cetera. And um, here we're reexamining, as you say, this Ur manifesto and appreciating all of the sort of beautiful potential in, in the forum and um, the way that a manifesto actually should be this kind of aspirational document, you know, and in, in, rather than, you know, what, what we generally see in, in these horrible reports. 
That's such an excellent point. And honestly, it hadn't occurred to me, um, partly because I'm not based in the States. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not faced with that particular monstrous excrescence of late capitalism yeah. <laughs> nearly as directly as you are. Um, when I, you know, I think in Britain, my, my hunch would be that, like me, when, when, when I hear the word manifesto, mostly, well, what mostly comes to my mind is the communist manifesto, but I yeah. think typically what tends to come to people's mind is artistic manifesto. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the futurist manifesto, the surrealist right. manifesto, the symbolist manifesto, um, all of which in various ways drew very specifically on the communist manifesto, mm -hmm. even if they were arguing with it. So right. yeah. um, it, it is a, you, you've really put, that's a very that's a fascinating and very poignant thought, which is that, to some extent, these horrifying screeds are the kind of bastard children of this. I'm allowed to say that, by the way, I am illegitimate. Um, <laughs> are are the bastard children of this extraordinary and beautiful text designed for liberation? Yeah, sorry about my my grim American edition there, but um. <laughs> Um, no, it's I'm, a really good point, and it literally <laughs> just hadn't occurred to me, actually. Yeah, I'm curious about, um, you, you talk a little bit about religion and theology, and also the manifesto mm -hmm. as a sort of catechism, um, you know, it's it, it sort of abiding certain structures of, of a kind of theological document. Um, there's a really mm -hmm. beautiful anecdote in, in the book that you pull from Marshall Berman that honestly made me tear up a little bit um, about uh, the Bavarian intellectual Hans Morgenthau, and Morgenthau is re um, remembering um, how his dad, who was a doctor, was visiting workers in a town, and many of the workers were dying of tuberculosis, and some of them wanted to be buried with the Communist Manifesto instead of the Bible. Mm. Um, it, it, it was that level of, of sort of, um, it held that power for them. Um, can you talk about that? Um, you know, that's obviously just like an illustration of, of the power of yeah. this document, but also how it can kind of displace or be in conversation with religious texts. Yeah, I'm glad you had that reaction. I had exactly the same reaction to that. That story is extremely beautiful. Um, yeah, I suppose... I suppose this come you know anyone who's been on the um, on the far left for years will be accused of being a member of a cult and accused of you know sometimes with you know varying degrees <laughs> of truth but certainly the the broad line of attack that communism is just a religion um, um, is is very common and it seemed to me so partly it, it, it seemed to me to be sort of interesting to like to take this rather than just be defensive about this attack, because this attack, it seems to me, much like the attacks of the um, the attacks on religion in general of the new atheists, um, mm -hmm. now kind of mercifully left behind by yes. history. Um, <laughs> new old, yeah. <laughs> but, right, right, right. It's, you know, one of the things that's interesting to me about that attack is how ignorant and, again, uncurious it is about religion. What What is religion? How does it work? And... And that dovetails with a lot of um, points like people think Marx is very hostile to religion because, you know, opium of the people. Um, and right. in fact, as you know, that full, the full quote in which he talks about religion, the heart of a heartless world, the sigh of an oppressed creature is exquisitely beautiful and mm -hmm. deeply humane and deeply understanding and deeply in, respectful. Marx and Engels, particularly Engels, very interested in the early history of religion and not just interested academically, have a great deal of kind of fascinated investment in some of the early radical religious sects. But 
when you have defenders of the manifesto or indeed of communism sort of saying like oh it's just a pure slur to say that we're a religion is couldn't be more different than that you know we're scientific socialists i always want to say gently well you know comrade to be fair, the first draft of the manifesto was written by Engels, and it was called a communist catechism, you know, and it was it was it was based on the catechism of the church, and the, the form is exactly like there's simply no way that there is not among others a religious substratum to this, and and I don't see that as a problem because I'm interested in 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 the way religion works and and i don't think religion as as some people seem to is merely an intellectual error that seems to me to be you know an absurdly facile view now in recent years it's also true that i've become i would say over the last decade personally i've become deeply fascinated by and moved by religion and theological writing and have gained an enormous amount philosophically from um approaching the such writings and that has i think to some extent sort of primed me to much more of a kind of open-minded and and um generous and curious and i hope sort of uh, humble in the sense of like having mm -hmm. humility yeah. about these traditions trying to be respectful to them um and partly this is about the way I, for me, I think a lot of it is to do with a relationship to the sublime, to that which mm -hmm. is beyond words. And this is why, you know, the key aspect of the, if you like, the religious stratum of the manifesto for me is not just an ethical, a set of ethical claims. And mm. Marx and Engels famously said they didn't have ethical positions and they were wrong. Right. Let's be clear about that. They <laughs> yeah. did. Um, and that's fine. But also it's, it's, it, it's a question of apocalypse. It's a question of mm. eschatology. And their, their key, if you like, I think the kind of the key category in the manifesto that distinguishes their communism from even very kind of good-hearted and serious reformism is rupture. What They, mm. they, they, they use this mm -hmm. amazing category of rupture, the rupture with the everyday. And this is a deeply, uh, this is a, I'm not saying it's reducible to religion, but I'm saying that it's inextricable from a kind of apocalyptic sense of, Definitely. Um, uh, you know, like these kind of millennial sects and so on, which was often an expression of kind of social agony and discontent um, and this the, the, the seeking of the kingdom of God on earth. And so that's why all of these um, threads kind of combine mm. into saying, the attack that this is a religious text, I do not think is doing the work you think it is doing. Um, <laughs> and that, that, you know, to take religion seriously as a way of thinking about, you know, it, one doesn't have to agree with every tenet of this or that theologian. But like, there's no question that this is a text that is structured by a set of, among other things, uh, religion adjacent concerns mm. and sublime adjacent concerns and um, and questions of affect and emotion and um, and as I say the beyond words and yeah and so those kind of came together and I thought mm. that it was um, mm -hmm. it, for me it's impossible to read the manifesto and not feel the stirrings of feelings that one could you know that, that it, it, it is not a conceptual violence to relate to as similar to those that people with deep faith feel about religion. It's really interesting. 
Yeah, those words like rupture, revolution, obviously it raises these sort of biblical images in the Judeo-Christian tradition around the tearing of the curtain or the cloth and, you know, revelations and all this. Um, I'm curious um, if you could say a little bit more about that that turn that you had about a decade ago to being more open to these Mm. ideas and in connection with the apocalypse. I know you're also obviously very concerned about the environment and the sort of eco apocalypse Mm. we find ourselves in. Um, I think famously at Salvage, you guys are made an argument to displace this language of Anthropocene with, I think, Proletarocene and um, you're playing with some of these edge ideas. And um, so what was it 10 years ago that moved you to reconsider some of this? Was it ecology or or something else? I mean, as so often with um, intellectual and political trajectories, the truth is I don't really know. Um, You know, I mean, I can, I can speculate on aspects of biology and, you know, the, 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 I mean, the loss of loved ones and things like that and a sense of sort of, uh, you know, political, uh, increasing sense of political desolation, mm. um, uh, increasing sense, you know, like, um, uh, and, and, and a kind of certain political homelessness. Um, and I'm not saying, I, and the, the, I'm sure there are elements to all of that, but I, I would be lying if I could say to you, like, here's why. And, and, and mm-hmm. that's, that's it. And I, I think, you know, I, 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 I've always liked, I've always, loved um a lot of kind of religious literature and poetry because as mm-hmm. i say for me that sense of the unsayable and the mm-hmm. beyond words the sublime yeah. broadly speaking but you know the beyond words the beyond language has always been very important to me both aesthetically and politically mm-hmm. and religious writing and theological writing are some of the most um interesting takes on that because it is so central to the to the set of concerns so initially i think i started reading these as a way of finding writing that was taking that kind of thing seriously um uh, and trying to kind of approach it both philosophically and 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 aesthetically um and 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 it just kind of grew from there and I mm. gain a lot of um, intellectual and indeed political resources from a lot of this and, and ethical uh, resources from a lot of this mm. writing um, and I, I, I grow increasingly respectful of and fascinated by it I think mm. one of the things that I noticed when I was um, you know when I was first interested in the sublime and I, I don't think this is a side note I think this does feature very directly into the politics that the way some of us experience radical politics. Yeah. Um, so I was reading a lot of philosophy about the sublime and there's an interesting, you know, with the capital S and the kind of the romantic mm-hmm. sublime and Burke the kind sublime of and that, that philosophical, yeah. right. That uh-huh. philosophical tradition of the sublime. Um, and which is obviously like well-trodden. And one of the very interesting things about it, and I'm sure someone in the chat will tell me I'm completely wrong and give me a a useful reference. And in fact, I would love such a reference. But broadly speaking, most of the philosophy that I read had this position that it said, um, you know, so the the sublime, when you feel kind of, uh, you know, beauty tinged with horror, you feel this kind of Mm -hmm. awe that you can't quite put into words like when you out at a raging sea or whatever and so they go into these enormous um uh excurses often very brilliant and very interesting on the way this works but very few of them engage with why why should Mm. humans react this way what is this and one of the things about religious texts whether you agree with them disagree with them whatever 
is that that question of the why is central to the discussion of the how and the what. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I am interested in the the red sublime. Um, it is it is the you know the red sublime that keeps me a a Marxist, a communist, a socialist. Yeah. Um, but to me, part of that question is, you know, even if it's an unanswerable question, I think it is, why should <laughs> the signifying monkeys that we are feel our breath <laughs> catch in our, in our chests when we, you know, stand on top of a mountain? Or when we hear about dying workers beg for the manifesto to be put in their coffin? Yeah. Why did that make you cry? Right. Why did it make me cry? What an extraordinary thing yeah what a wonderful thing i think i've also had that experience of sublimity in in organizing in in moments where you're sharing this communal space and you know this might all fall apart but we're sort of we're trying something mm. you know we're pushing something and um yeah whether it's at occupy or in mutual aid there's a there's still these sorts of projects where you can yeah. come up close to some experience that's very difficult to articulate um, right, exactly. You know that that difficulty to articulate. I know yeah. exactly what you mean. Yeah. Um, well, we're on this topic of of kind of coming up to towards rupture and revolution. Um, there's this interesting um, part where you talk about reform in the Communist Manifesto, mm. which is not a word we generally associate with it. Um, and obviously, one of the things that maybe we could say it got wrong was we didn't obviously slide headfirst into the eradication of the bourgeoisie and, you know, move towards something else. But, um, you know, there's this section um, where, where you talk about how the manifesto actually is listing out steps that are good reforms that can move us toward revolution and are still part of a revolu revolutionary project, despite actually sounding incredibly sort of banal or <laughs> like too humble, yeah. like a high progressive income tax. The I know, that's my favorite one. I, love I mean, that it's... One. <laughs> So, um, yeah, t say a little bit about, you know, why yeah. this list exists in the, the Communist Manifesto and how Marx and Engels were thinking about these stepwise uh, pieces of the revolution. Yeah. yeah, you zeroed in on exactly the one that always makes me laugh because you have this incredible document that's like talking about sweeping away the muck of history yeah. and the rupture and the revolution. And it goes, here are our demands high progressive income tax <laughs> yeah. and you're like, wow you know um right. <laughs> but i mean to be to be and to be fair um marx and engels always said um like the, basically from from very early on they said like don't fixate on the specific demands and the demands were important in their time but like they say in in the in the following editions they say like the, the specifics of the demands are not what you should focus on because that moment has gone the purpose of basically the way the reforms work for them there is a there is a fundamental difference between um reformism as a movement and and, mm. and revolutionary socialism and the funny thing is sometimes the two might be pushing very very similarly for a very similar or even exactly the same reform but the point is uh -huh. As, as part of what package of other demands and, and how, because the point is, as I try to say, for Marx and Engels in the manifesto, they're, they're demanding these things that, that, that had a certain traction in a certain context and that need to be specified for each individual context, not only because they will improve the life of the working class, although they will and that is a good thing to do, mm -hmm. but because these specific demands, in their judgment, um, 
push up against the the sort of uh, the permissible limits of the existing capitalism and the kind of the integument that capitalism has has kind of uh, extruded around itself in that moment so that to grant this reform basically begins to throw the whole system into um, uh, into question mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it it can grant it the, these are not like the the, the the demanded reform is not you know abolish profit you know it, right. it is you know it is possible for capital capitalism can't be capitalism and abolish profit it certainly can have you know the abolition of child labor and free universal yes. education um but by instigating those measures kicking and screaming if it must under certain circumstances particularly when it has said very clearly it can't do it or won't do it what it also does is it pulls again it to what to some extent it shows the, the power of the working class but that's not the main thing the main thing is that it mm. it undermines capitalism's own logic mm. um mm-hmm. and and the the boundaries of that will be will be different in different contexts in different times and that's why you have in the in in this moment of like early capitalism you have this this rather underwhelming series of 10 demands because (laughs) for those to have been pushed through at the time you know in the ways that they wanted to push them through would have like really pushed the system up against its own limits and thrown it into question um because because of what it was essentially because of the bounds of the possible that it was projecting mm-hmm. and you you can see that nowadays very clearly one oh of the my. things that was it doesn't auto, i mean sadly it doesn't automatically translate into mass radicalism but it can like and when you have right. you know one of the interesting things about the um, the pandemic and i'm hardly the only person to point this out is you have literally decades of neoliberalism saying you know, we cannot provide this, you know, safety net demanding. It's literally impossible. Things don't work that way. And then in a matter of fucking days, they're like pouring more money into a furlough scheme than than would have been imaginable a week and a half earlier and so on. And so... One of the one of the few things that that kind of gives me that has given me hope about the sort of the sclerosis and the brittleness of American capitalism in particular, American mm-hmm. neoliberalism, which has in its exact, in its lack of a, of a welfare state and of a, of a work right. of a mass workers for some time and of a workers party is that the, the boundaries of what it considers permissible and possible or claims to be, you know, permissible and possible are so constrained that a relatively minor mm-hmm. um, victory can actually really throw this, the system into question. Yeah. The reason, one of the reasons that the the demand for universal healthcare in the states is so vital is not just because it will end the truly breathtaking mass barbarism of the American healthcare system, but because if you've had this system saying for decades, well, we even if we wanted to, we can't. Right. And you know, bullshit. I know that's bullshit. Everyone watching the th- the, 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 the the stream knows that's bullshit. And when we eventually prove that it's bullshit, um, that that alibi of what is and isn't possible is punctured mm-hmm. immediately. And that is the nature of the revolutionary re- reform. Mm. Yeah. And it, it seems, I mean, from what I just read about the politics in the UK also, that that is why people on the left are so passionate about the national healthcare system there mm. and are trying to save it, you know, from these politics of austerity. Absolutely. 
And there's a danger here, which is that uh, there's a, da I mean, you know, much like a manifesto and much like any political, any text, th there is very, very rarely a kind of Simon pure political mm. um, uh, phenomenon. So uh, ultra leftists will enjoy pointing out quite rightly that like you know the welfare state was you know uh was was you know a, a negotiation by the government to waylay mm -hmm. social concerns and that you know right. this is all perfectly yeah. true and if uh, and and you know the the massive social good of the welfare state and the national health service was very very real but it was not without its political ambivalences that's perfectly mm -hmm. true but the, the question is to make a political judgment in the moment. And at the moment, the collapse of, I, I think even at the time it was set up, but certainly now, you know, the collapse of the NHS at the moment, which is terrifyingly imminent yeah, and, and something seems... that is being pushed very, very hard in this country, would be such a political um, defeat mm -hmm. for, um, for us that... And conversely, the converse of that is they are pushing so hard and they are making it as if the crisis that it's in is so much a matter of just like the weather that there's nothing you can do about it, that to to defeat that agenda and to, you know, bolster the NHS and to save it and to get the money that, you know, we demand for it and so on would be a real political triumph. Again, doubtless not without its ambivalences. Welcome mm -hmm. to being a human. But nonetheless, <laughs> political triumph. Yeah, and I and I like the as, way that as you, as well as keeping people alive, and I'm I, pro that. Well, exactly. I was just going to say because I think you make this really elegant point in the book, which is, yes, all of this this sort of, you know, this play of of logic, reform, revolution, but also Marx and Engels are people existing in a world with factories and death and immiseration, and they actually care if people are living or dead are healthy, you know, or sick. And um, yeah, and so these reform measures, they do save lives and <laughs> you have to be alive to yeah, fight and it's something one of the, else, right? Yeah, and, 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 and you, you, you know, you see it, I mean, if, funnily enough, to some degree less in the manifesto than in some of their other texts, mm -hmm. but when you read some of the descriptions in Capital or you read, you know, Engels's, you know, excoriating, beautiful, brilliant condition of the working class, the sheer disgust and rage and its obverses, which is this love, this love of what could be, this yeah, desperate exactly. yearning. I think, you know, yearning. I think, I think, I for me at least, to be a to be a socialist is to is to yearn, and mm -hmm. you can't yearn unless you you want, and you want things to be better. And yeah. Um, and yeah, they 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 wanted things to be better, and I think everyone listening to this does too. China, I'm going to just ask one more question, and then and then start pulling in some audience questions. But um, I have a question just about your own relationship to to this book and other works of nonfiction. Um, you know, you are known, I think, primarily as a writer of these beautiful works of speculative fiction. Um, why do these sorts of projects? Because a lot of these ideas of Marxism that we've been discussing today are already quite apparent in in your novels. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I like, <laughs> I like the idea. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like the, there's a, there's an implication. It's like, well, you didn't need to write this because we've got, <laughs> you know, the city in the city. So it's all, it's one of the, I mean, I guess 
it's funny the way you formulate it because to me um to me it's precisely because fiction like on the one hand anyone who knows anything about um anyone who reads my fiction i think let alone if they know anything about me is probably going to be able to put together reasonably clearly a sense of where i stand on certain things not because i try to be sloganeering in in my fiction i very much don't i don't in fact a lot of fiction i don't like is i don't like it because i think it's too heavy-handed politically but because i think the sense of my concerns and my approach to the world and so on but when you're doing fiction you have this great luxury which is that you don't have to you 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 have you can raise questions and ideas and so on without explicitly answering them not merely to be evasive but because you don't necessarily know or because that's not the the point of the book or because the question and the uncertainty is precisely the aesthetic that you're trying to communicate or whatever whereas when i want to make a political argument it seems to me Mm -hmm. there's a big difference between ruminating on political ideas and like trying to put together a coherent political argument and to me there is I, you know, I, I make no um, claims about what the way other people can do things. But for me, there is actually no replacement if the project is to make a clear political mm-hmm. argument mm-hmm. than to do exactly that. Hence, writing essays and nonfiction and so on. And why? Because I um, because I think because because it's a constitutive part of me and because um because it is distracting to live in this shithole world mm. and and i would love i would love to not i would love to just write you know silly books about monsters and 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 you know try poetry and all that kind of thing but i think i think i, I think it can be you know it's very distracting and very necessary to try to understand the world and to try to understand the world as part of an agenda of trying to change it. And so um, I don't have a more coherent answer than that, really. It's, no, it's, it's um, yeah. All right. Well, we have some really wonderful questions from the audience. Thanks to Jordan and John from Haymarket for moderating these. And I think these really show also um, how excellent the Haymarket readership is. Um, here's one from um, a person who has already read the book, uh, China. So Bill Nevins writes, Um, You make some astute comments in the last section of A Spectre Haunting about the impact of the COVID pandemic on American neoliberalist capitalism and the topic of hate. Um, Hate was sort of on our list of of things we wanted to talk about China, but didn't quite get to. Um, Why do you talk about hate in this book? What are you trying to accomplish with that? Um, Basically, uh, that that whole section kind of stems from a a long-running very um, comradely and, 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 and close but debate that I've had with a, a friend for a long time mm-hmm. um, about about the nature of hate and it seems to me that um, there is a there is a very strong kind of um, anti-hate ideology and propaganda in modernity <laughs> and th- this idea that you, at, at the same time as it's a system that throws up hate, willy-nilly um and 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 rewards it in certain contexts but to explicitly say that you hate something political is um and i think this is particularly the case in the states with its fetish for civility yeah um 
Although maybe Trump has changed that a bit. I don't know. But anyway, um, this notion that it is unseemly to say that. And it's like, you know, look, we're all for improving the world and so on. But like you talk about hating a system, you know, this is not really helpful and so on. And that section was born simply out of me being I I don't want to be ashamed of hating things. And I don't want I I don't want to be hate shamed. And it seems to me (laughs) I'm not saying you have to hate. What I'm saying is, and and, and I draw in the book on a lot of uh, writers who've who've. Uh, I did some research and I found, like, again, actually, this is a, this is an area in which some of the theological um, yeah. uh, resources are very useful. But that if you look, hate as a social phenomenon is inevitable. And not only in the sense mm-hmm. that it is purely utopian in the bad sense to think to imagine a world. Uh, uh, without hatred at the moment. You can't imagine getting rid of hatred in this world. And many of us uh, will hate all kinds of things. And given that it's inevitable, it seems to me very unhelpful to make anyone feel ashamed for anything that is inevitable. That doesn't mean that anything you feel is okay. It it depends. (laughs) But, but, you know, um, if this is not like, you know, Alistair Crowley, this is not do, do as thou wilt. My point is, this is where the ethics comes in. If you have hate, does not equal hate, does not equal hate. Like mm-hmm. it's not it, it, it's not a single phenomenon. The, the hatred for um, you know the, the, the hatred for uh, an ethnic minority is not commensurate with the hatred of an exploitative system. Right. They're not the same thing. Um, even if the emotion of the person in that moment might look the same, they might mm-hmm. be like angry in the same way. It's not the same social phenomenon. And if you are, uh, this is where I draw a lot on Engels in the um, condition of the working class, right. because he, he talks very clearly about the trap of individual hate. He says, you know, do, you know, this is not about hating individual people. It's very, sometimes it's difficult not to, but that's not, that's not going to help you. It's going to hurt you. But like, if you, if you have an analysis as I do in which this enormous amount of social ills is a result of this system that explicitly says human need is subordinate to profit, if that's your analysis, and if you have an ethics by which human life Um, human liberation, human fulfillment, human flowering is a good. And if you have, therefore, an analysis in which all of those things are crushed under an accumulative dynamic, (laughs) who would you be not to hate? Who would you be not to say this is a hateful system and I hate it? Mm -hmm. So partly that section about hate is just a way of saying, you know, I'm not ashamed of this, partly because for me, hatred has been very politically motivating yeah um and and so that's that's really where 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 that came from i think thank you here's a question from and Joshua. i tried i tried oh. to footnote it so that it's not just a, an, a you know me ranting i mean there are there is a small <laughs> very interesting and very beautiful and i i think very yeah as i say very beautiful literature on like the lack on hate and and mm-hmm. the, the necessity of or the the, the, the unashamed hate and mm-hmm. particularly when you start to think of it as an obverse of love um i you know i hence my partial defense i think i enjoyed that section <laughs> Um, here's a question from Joshua Fries, who is a union bus driver um Joshua says i've seen Co-workers grow in militancy through struggle, but rarely join discussions of left politics. 
Was the manifesto read widely by working class people when published? Mm -hmm. It's a really excellent question. Um, I mean, to be glib, the, I mean, some, sometimes, um, one of, one of the things that's so fascinating about the manifesto is the way it, its reception, um, kind of ebbed and flowed. Um, so uh, as a rough and ready, um, as a rough and ready rule at moments of like great political discontent, let alone, um, struggle, uh, interest in the manifesto translation sales, etc., surged, um, it's an it's a remarkable kind of barometer of um of of well discontent but also i think of yearning i think it's a barometer of yearning um mm. and one of the things that you know uh, the, the the kind of collapse of the social imaginary one of the things it does is says you know you have nowhere to go with your yearning keep it to right. yourself so the, the moment there's a sense in which that yearning might have an outlet then people are uh, are casting around for one. So I think it's always been a question of, you know, much like now, there will be kind of small minorities of, of workers and indeed of other people um, who will be explicitly interested in the manifesto and so on. And the degree to which they can have wide attraction among the working class uh, depends very greatly on the, the wider social circumstances, you know, how much... As 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 the great uh, Italian anarchist put, Malatesta put it, you know how much people are capable um, of wanting. Mm. Um, how much you know because and 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 if people are capable, if people are allowed, if if there are the resources to want and to yearn, then I think more people start to come to it. It's always been a minority current. There's no question mm -hmm. about that. But I think, but I think that that's the the nature of the ebbs and flows. One of the points about that, and I'm I'm, I'm sure that the, the questioner knows this, um, Joshua. Yes, I, I'm sure that Joshua knows this. But um, you know, there's this classic thing, which is if you if you give people a list of like, you know, do you support this? Do you support this? Do you support this? And then and then at the end, you know, are you a socialist? Loads <laughs> of people will say, no, I'm not a socialist. And yes, I support right, all these things yeah. that you consider socialist measures. Um, so I think. I think there's probably a difference between saying, and, and again, the, the the moment is going to be what's all important here, uh, as well as you know your own relationship with people. But there's a difference between sort of trying to kind of uh, you know have debates and arguments and share these ideas and so on with people who are implacably opposed to the mm. specific the specific um, pr processes and and if you like policies and programs of any kind of redistributive let alone socialist let alone communist um movement that's one thing but then there's very much another which is essentially to kind of to kind of point out to people or to or to learn for yourself that people actually are way more left-wing if you like than a lot of them think they are mm. um now I think there is still something very important about kind of identifying so I'm not saying therefore it doesn't matter just leave it but I am saying it's a different kind of debate and it's a different kind of struggle. So this is a, a long-winded way of saying, uh, it, you know, it was never read at a kind of mass level, but certainly mm -hmm. there were times when it was, um, you know, an important and influential voice in the working class movement. Mm. Here's a question from uh, someone whose screen name is Labor Creates All Wealth. <laughs> what should today's socialists 
um, include in today's manifesto. And um, the questioner gives an example, for example, you know, should it address political things like having a more democratic constitution? Um, but maybe I'll put it to you just more broadly, China, like if you were to write such a thing, what would it have in it? I'm going to be really annoying. And thank you. It's a brilliant question. I'm going to be really annoying and I'm going to duck it by saying like, you know, I wouldn't write it because I think I think it's in the nature of any such document that it has to be collective. It has to be democratically designed. Um, so I can I can spit out some ideas, but I, I, I really don't want to be read as saying these are programmatically what I think, because this is exactly the kind of thing one should have a debate about. And I might put something forward and you might point out to me why that wouldn't work and I might change my mind instantly. That's exactly the process we need. Um, I like that the questioner has focused on some political things because I do think that there can sometimes be some areas of some sort of wings of the radical movement which can be a little bit dismissive about some of the political stuff and sort of see it, you know, like really it's kind of workplace or nothing, you know, mm, it's kind of, yeah. you know, Soviets or nothing. And I'm all for Soviets. Let me be very clear about this. I'm all for workplace organizing. You know, but I, I don't think that the particularly and crucially in a non-revolutionary situation, when you are precisely trying to put forward radical reforms, reforms that stretch the limits of the existing system, I think that political form is um, is very much uh, is important and an important part of this. So off the top of my head, I would say, um, you know, it, the U.S. in some ways is easier to answer that for because the U.S. has this um, this historical particularity of like not having really a meaningful welfare state and not having a right. um, a workers' party. And so, right. you know, absolutely instantly, first thing on my agenda, universal healthcare, bang. Yeah. Um, uh, now, you know, immediately after that, you know, very strong rent controls. I think, yes, absolutely abolition of the electoral college, um, abolition of half of the, you know, the appurtenances of the, let's be clear, deliberately anti-democratic system mm -hmm. of, quote, democracy in the US. I mean, and I'm not <laughs> saying anything that any serious scholar of the Constitution doesn't know. Um, you know, this is not just a kind of, you know, filthy red point. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite explicit, <laughs> you know. The Electoral College yeah. exists to be anti-democratic. This is not a right. this is not a controversial <laughs> point. So yes, I, I would say like some things like that, and simply, simply you know being completely intransigent on these points. Like this is not a mm -hmm. there, there are there, there may be things in which in a non-revolutionary situation you know you you do a bit of horse trading and you you know but no you know the Electoral College mm -hmm. goes the Supreme Court you know lifetime appointments of the Supreme Court goes mm -hmm. uh, etc 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 so and for me yeah in this country I mean sure get rid of the House of Lords get rid of um but but it, it's harder for me to say I, I would need I would need to think I mean Obviously, like people probably know that we're, our, our, our parliament is pushing through a bunch of extraordinary anti-union laws at the yeah. moment. And that would, you know, that's the thing that is jumping to my head right now. Um, personally, a little bit of a personal shibboleth here. Um, one of the things I would do in Britain as a, as a radical reform, uh, overnight, I would ban private schools. Mm. Um I think that, that would have an yeah. Well, yeah, I think it would have an enormous impact on on British class society in mm -hmm. particular, okay. um, yeah. and it certainly wouldn't eradicate capitalism. But the, the the particular 
nature of the private school nexus in this country um uh, uh i think that that you know if 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 wealthy i mean i would i would like to extend that to private healthcare in this country too mm-hmm. but particularly private schools if if if, yeah. if wealthy people were forced to use the education system of the local school system i think it would have an enormous impact mm. on um on on britain and someone is going to point out that as a child i went to private schools <laughs> and they are going to say that i am a hypocrite and i'm going to say to them i did not choose which schools i went to and that is not what hypocrite means and there is absolutely no logical contradiction between having been through a system and wanting to destroy it <laughs> very good Here's a question from um, David uh, Berger, who asks if you could talk a little bit about socialism as conceived by Marx and Engels in their time and contemporary socialism or social democratic politics or however you want to characterize it. How would Marx and Engels look at our socialist organizations that we have now? I mean, thank you for the question, David. I, I... Let me, I'm going to come at this backwards. The, the, the final part of the question, you know, how would Marx and Engels look at the socialist organizations of today? I, I want to sound a note of caution about this because I, I don't want to put words into the questioner's mouth. I'm not suggesting that this is, um, this is their point. But I do worry sometimes that one of the ways that we try to kind of, if you like, derive our politics on the, on the Marxist left is to sort of say, well, what would Marx and Engels think? Let's do that. And mm, okay, as, mm-hmm. as a shorthand, I get it, of course. But the point is, the point is, A, Marx and Engels could be wrong about about things. B, it's perfectly possible to have like, you know, an interpretation of, uh, of a broadly sort of Marxist method and come to a different conclusion from that very philosophy about a particular system or situation come to a different conclusion than Marx himself may have done. Um, so I, I, I worry about the sort of uh, the shibboleth, if you like, of trying to kind of find, you know, the one true line that would be the one true thing they would say. So I would say, uh, briefly speaking, I don't really purport to know. And I'm fine with that. I don't, and I, I don't think that the, the, the search for what they would say is really the best way for me to think about uh, relating to political mm. movements. Um, I mean, they were both, I, I think that historically Marx and Engels um, tended to be probably somewhat more optimistic about the chances for, you know, revolution and so on than certainly I would be today. I think mm. they tended to underestimate the... Um, the resilience and the uh, um, the adaptability of capitalism, and um, combine that with the fact that they were, I think, quite rightly and quite explicitly, always committed to revolutionary change, ruptural change. Um, uh, they they were not dismissive about reforms, as we've said. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, you know, they were interested in sort of revolutionary organizations. And what that would mean is that, you know, uh, the, the sort of avowedly non-revolutionary socialist left in the States and so on, it's very easy and yeah. correct as far as it goes as a, as a Marxist to say, well, here's where I disagree with this, that and the other. But that's a very, it's a very sort of shallow and I think unhelpful way of, of, of proceeding. I mean, I have 
at, at the abstract level, the, you know, the, 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 the distinction between, you know, socialism and contemporary kind of democratic socialism, whatever, I kind of, I'm sorry to, I'm, I'm sorry to David, because I'm not going to answer this question very well, because I think as we've <laughs> tried to say, one of the things about socialism as a term is that it can mean an awful lot of different things. Um, and I, I think the way I would approach it is say, to say something like, you know, take, take Bernie Sanders, like, mm-hmm. do I have differences with Bernie's politics undoubtedly a ton of them not least that i'm committed to ruptural politics um and you know and i have disagreed with some of his positions on international issues of economics and this that and the other and so on okay so fine and i think it's very important to be clear about that and to be honest Mm -hmm. about it and to have a hopefully comradely discussion about it and so on do i also think that uh sanders and you know the squad and so on of all of whom i have you know criticisms and with whom i have certain differences do i think that they have been you know overall if you like a kind of enriching uh foundation for socialism whatever it means Mm -hmm. and across all these different definitions in the u.s absolutely undoubtedly Mm -hmm. um and to a certain extent i think what i'm simply trying to say is uh you know the classic kind of plea against sectarianism and to just and again i don't want to suggest that the question is being sectarian but i there is a way of interpreting this in a sectarian fashion and in the in the very old-fashioned definition of sectarianism rather than starting by focusing on differences start by focusing on on you know comradeship start by focusing on shared agendas and by all means talk about differences where and when we must mm. so um i am aware that's a really unhelpful <laughs> uh, uh uh answer but i um you know i i quite specifically in the book did not present a program of my own thoughts in any but the most general and nebulous way mm. and some people have criticized me for that and fair enough but that was quite a deliberate choice yeah. because this is not a book that is designed to be a political intervention in that direct way it's a book that's designed to be a political intervention at a more sort of general level you mm-hmm. know um, here's a question that that gets a little bit into what we were talking about around your fiction, but we have a very big fan of Marx and your fiction, Robin Goodman, China. And um, Robin asks how Marxism relates to your fiction books like Perdido Street Station and Embassy Town. Um, I know that you've already said that you're not doing a sort of heavy handed or deliberate kind of like, you know, argumentative politics in your novels, but maybe there's there, you could talk a little bit about how that thinking maybe inflect some of the writing or characterization in those books? Well, thank you, Robin. I think um, I'm not being, I'm not being coy when I say that I think in many cases I I might be the last person to know and the worst person to to answer because I do think (laughs) I do think that there's that it's a fallacy to think that writers understand their own work better than anyone else. Um, I, again, I know you're not saying this, but some people do. I've seen plenty of writers tell people that their readings of their works are wrong because that's not what they meant. And I think I hope we can all agree that who gives a fuck what you meant? You know, <laughs> the question is what the question is what the work is doing. You know. Yeah. Now, what I can say, and this is an analogy I've used before, so please forgive me. Um, repeating myself the way i relate to it is this i my head is a a a a pot and it's filled with 
loads and loads of ingredients and they're just like bubbling around all the time and when i am writing a book i'm spooning things out into bowls from the same pot i only have one pot and it's all the same stuff that's in there and it's all mixing together and it's all being heated together but i spoon them out differently and i lay them out differently and i might fish for some ingredients more than others for fiction and for non-fiction but inevitably they've flavored each mm-hmm. other and so on um so i i have um at the most explicit level you know i like to put sort of little jokes or easter eggs or whatever in yeah. some of the fiction so you know if you are if you are interested in marxist philosophy and you do happen to read my kids book unlondon you may raise a wry <laughs> smile at the fact that there is a fairly clear altuser joke in it but <laughs> if you're not it doesn't matter you know mm-hmm. and that's at the most explicit level beyond that it's like as we've talked about the sublime yearning class yeah. struggle beauty hatred all mixed around and spooned out differently um and and the and the basic difference is i'm spooning and this is where the metaphor completely breaks down but when i'm writing non-fiction i'm spooning <laughs> out ingredients with an attempt to make a particular argument as i say the metaphor breaks down um whereas if i'm doing non-fiction i'm trying to kind of make the most delicious and um uh, sort of mick uh what's the word sort of um subtle uh, and surprising stew that I can, but it's all the same ingredients. They're just doing different things. Mm. We talked a little bit about um, the the line about the worker has no country or should have no country. Um, mm. A question from the audience: The manifesto ends with the call for workers of all countries to unite. Is that realistic today? What would that look like today? I mean. I, I would say that it is not only realistic, it is necessary and vital. I think I think if 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 our program is to change the world, if our program is to cleave to liberation and to allow the full development of humanity, then if this does not happen internationally, it is not happening. Mm. So I would turn the question on its head. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, you know, so no, it's not realistic. Neither is a socialist revolution realistic. Neither <laughs> is ruptural politics realistic. Neither is, a, you know, is a, a, a national healthcare system in the US realistic. None of this is realistic. We are not, we are in the business of changing what is realistic. Our job is to ch- change our job is to push and push and push until certain things that are not realistic become realistic. You know, you know, female suffrage was not realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing with the, 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 um, actually the thing with, as I say, I think it has to be put the other way around. You, any, to, to say that, you know, that, that, um, workers of all countries have to unite doesn't mean like you know it's a monday you have a revolution there are no countries on the tuesday that's not how we're talking about here but it is to say that autarky in a in a global and and the manifest this is not just me the manifesto is very clear on this autarky in a global uh economy in a global context is is not sustainable you might be able to limp along for a while but you are not going to survive that's simply at an economic level at a political level you know I am not free when anyone is in chains, mm-hmm. you know, um, if I can, to quote you, Tammy, you, you, you wrote something very, very beautiful, um, about, and you were talking very specifically about unions and 
union nationalism and internationalism, uh, nationally focused unions versus internationalism. You had this wonderful phrase, which is you said, what good is a fortified island in a thrashing sea? Mm, um, kind of and I, I thought that was so beautiful and, and, and so on point. So I guess, I guess to the questioner, I would say, um, I, I would say nothing is, none of this is, none of this is realistic. Um, and all of it is necessary. Yeah. Such a beautiful way to end this, this, um, time together, China. Thank you so much. You're such a generous and inspiring conversationalist. And, um, I hope everybody has ordered this book and, or will get it from their bookstore. It really is such a wonderful and refreshing way to re-encounter the communist manifesto. So thank you very much for being with us, everybody. Thank you to John and Anthony and Jordan for putting this together. Thank Thank you, China. Congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.